This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Emeritus Professor John Burns. John Burns is based at the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong. He joined me via Skype to talk about the protests in Hong Kong, as well as the view from mainland China. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM. I'm Amy Mullins and I have with me all the way from Hong Kong via Skype, uh, Professor John Burns. He's an emeritus professor now and he has been based at the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong and his areas of expertise include comparative politics and public administration and particularly looking at China, as in mainland China, as well as Hong Kong and party state relations, which, of course, is very interesting given the topics that we are to discuss and he's the author and editor of many books and uh, he's been writing some very interesting opinion pieces as well online so I'm very excited now to have with me uh, Professor Burns. Hello there. Good morning. Morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Maybe I'll start with an obvious question which is that I believe you're currently in Hong Kong. Indeed, I am. <laughs> is there, um, in your mind, given that you have a, an event on at Melbourne University on Thursday, do you foresee any issues in terms of the uh, protests that are currently going on at the airport, which, um, as I'm sure you're aware, have disrupted flights, particularly yesterday? Yes, of course, there's always the possibility that I will not be able to make it. Um, but uh, when I checked um, earlier this morning... Th- the airport, I mean, flights were boarding. There's a lot of cancellations, mm-hmm. to be sure. So, But also the protesters said that they had an intention to return. So it's a, it's a moving feast, as we say. Yes, it seems like it's evolved. It initially was slated as a three-day protest in the airport and there was still freedom of movement in terms of travellers getting to and from the terminals until uh, yesterday when it appeared like more protesters turned up to the airport and apparently um, essentially blocked the, the ability for passengers and travellers to get to where they needed to go. Yes, they had been in the arrivals area, but as more people turned up, more protesters turned up, they also flooded the departures area, and I think it was this, plus the difficulty of people getting to the airport, that convinced the airport authority to cancel flights yesterday. Indeed. Now, let's um, bring this back to... The last few months, I interviewed um, another person who's also based in Hong Kong a couple of months ago, Anthony DePiran, who's a lawyer over there, and we were talking a bit about the extradition bill, which of course was on the surface of it, the initial reason why we saw these uh, rounds of protests happening was that people were concerned around the extradition bill and what um, impact it would have in terms of people being prosecuted in China for criminal issues and of course the justice system and the political system of government being very different between uh, Hong Kong and China. Given your uh, great 
expertise and knowledge and understanding of um, the government of China and of Hong Kong. I'd really like uh, your, first of all, your bigger picture understanding of the China-Hong Kong relationship, which uh, is clearly fraught and uh, certainly has evolved since the original agreement was undertaken and uh, when Britain basically handed over Hong Kong and Hong Kong um, became, I guess, a separate entity from China with a future view um, and deal or arrangement to be brought back into mainland China. How has that uh, agreement been viewed from both sides, both China, the Chinese government, and also um, Hong Kongers and locals there in terms of this current round of protests? What are, what's the perception or the, um, the concern around, around that issue of, of moving back into to China, which to me, from an outsider, it seems like um, plays a strong part in the ongoing protests? Yes, I agree that it, the entire protest is about the relationship of Hong Kong to the mainland, I mean, as um, China. Um, I mean, if you look at it, um, the big picture from the mainland perspective, and I think from the overwhelming majority perspective in Hong Kong, Hong Kong is a part of China. I mean, and so this is... Uh, uh, there's only a very small percentage of people who are say who are denying this. I would say, so from China's perspective, you know, Hong Kong is a part of China. Hong Kong should get on with its economic integration with the mainland. We have new policies to help Hong Kong do this. Also, Hong Kong is probably more marginalized, I would say, as time goes on. Its contribution, say, to GDP and to China's economic growth keeps declining. So th this is uh, from the mainland perspective. From Hong Kong's perspective, I think up until quite recently, say, um, early last month, there were not five issues that people here were concerned with. They were basically four. I mean, and the extradition bill was one of the main ones. But I think people now see that the political system that we have here, which is an unreformed colonial political system, no reform, you know, uh, that this political system is not working for the people of Hong Kong. So this is a serious problem. The government here seems incapable of addressing this problem. And the on the mainland, um, we just get uh, strong rhetoric and bluster. Now, to be sure, in Hong Kong, we've seen a lot of violence and a lot of um, fighting between uh, radical protesters, I would say, and the police. Nobody in Hong Kong wants to see this, but the Hong Kong government and its backers on the mainland refuse to take responsibility for the chaos which the Hong Kong government has caused. I think this has become the the critical issue, this one of accountability. That doesn't mean democracy. I mean, being accountable is a, a very, very important thing on the mainland and in Hong Kong. And yet we see the Hong Kong government um, studiously refusing to be accountable for this mess. And our colonial 
era political institutions basically require that the government itself decide decides when and on what terms it will be accountable. The law requires that it be accountable to the Hong Kong SAR as well as to the central government. That part of the law is not being implemented. Yes, and it's interesting in one of your opinion pieces, which was called Hong Kong Police, Breed Mistrust and Uncertainty with Selective Law Enforcement, you talk about the fact that on July 1, there was a a major event, which I'm sure many people would have seen on the television, uh, when the uh, Legislative Council complex uh, was stormed by a select group of protesters and uh, many of the areas of the building were defaced and uh, graffitied and damaged. And um, you talk a bit about the inconsistent application of the law and the varying levels of force that have been used at different points in this um, protest period. What is your view in terms of the Hong Kong police and also the Hong Kong government? And and their approach or strategy uh, in terms of dealing with the protesters? Is is it kind of just like, um, you know, are they washing their hands of it or putting their head in the sand? Or how is this kind of level of um, apparent chaos being allowed to occur? Well, I think you're correct. If you look at the situation on July 1 when the... Uh, when the, I would call it a slow motion break-in to Let's Go, the police were all there, and they stood around watching it. Now, this Mm. is, uh, to my way of thinking, this is uh, absolutely incredible. But, of course, this was a political decision. This was the government's decision to do this. And I think they hoped that the protesters would just discredit themselves and then somehow go away. We also had another case of the police failing to enforce the law. And this is when triad gangsters attacked protesters um, later in the month, and the police were nowhere to be found. In fact, people have said that the police were colluding with them, although the police denied it. They said, oh, well, you know, we were uh, we were overwhelmed or something like this. So there are these uh, inconsistencies. Now, however, I think the situation has changed. We have very, very strong endorsement from the central government for strong policing. And this... Um, from the last week or so, this is what we see. And so this, this, and I would say the police have become smarter. Um, two days ago, they showed up at the protests dressed like protesters and then um, arrested protesters So for riot. Which, I mean, I'm the kind of person that thinks we have the law, the law should be enforced. I mean, and if you don't enforce the laws or you unevenly enforce the laws, this just breeds mistrust of the police and of the government. And this is what has happened. So we have we have the police, we have very high levels of mistrust of the police, I would say. We have a community that's divided on the role of the police and whether they should be supported or not. Um, so this is this is very severe. I mean, how 
uh, and and we have the government, which is basically relying only on the police and policing to stay where it is. I mean, I think this is ridiculous. The community, the government needs the cooperation of the community. And what the protests are saying is, we are denying this to you. So this this makes the entire operation of Hong Kong, the governance of Hong Kong, um, getting things done in Hong Kong, difficult. Yes, you do highlight an, a really important point there about the Hong Kong government um, and the fact that there was a bit of a contrast, really, we saw at the beginning of those protests that Carrie Lam, you know, came out and did a, a midnight press conference one of the nights and was up there fronting the press and taking questions about the extradition bill. Now it seems that the government is far less visible and, as you say, relying on the Hong Kong police and probably the Hong Kong police is getting... Um, a lot of uh, pushback and fallout from the actions that the government, as you say, is relying on them to take. Uh, in terms of the Hong Kong government actually acting as a government, what have they been doing in the past week, I guess visibly or apparently uh, to you? Uh, this is why, I, you know, to me it seems a bit like a parallel universe. If you look at what the Hong Kong government is doing you know, it's opening beaches, closing beaches, inspecting seafood and all the other things that, of course, the community needs. But they are failing to address the accountability issue. They are failing to take responsibility for the mess that Hong Kong is in now. And I think this is the, this is the most serious problem and the most serious failure of the Hong Kong government. No one has resigned, for example. No government officials have resigned. No advisors to the government have ad have resigned. You know, in the press, they say, oh, we did nothing wrong. I mean, this is totally and utterly at odds with community sentiment. So they're relying on the police. They have very strong backing from the central government, which yesterday referred to the protests as, you know, elements of terrorism. So this is, this is a strong condemnation from the central government, and yet we see the government invisible, incapacitated, and, the, and no moral authority. Indeed. And if we bring in uh, China and the central government that you've just referenced there, uh, there have been reports that um, essentially Chinese police from the mainland have been assembling uh, close to the border of Hong Kong and conducting drills and exercises which uh, seem to be being used as a, as a psychological tactic, um, something that's meant to, I guess, threaten uh, the protesters and suggest that uh, the Chinese government isn't taking this lying down and that uh, just because they haven't taken a clear um, and overt action doesn't mean that they um, don't have a, a strong position and they haven't been um, doing things in the background. What is uh, your view on China, mainland China and the government and how they've been managing this crisis? Because as you say, essentially Hong Kong is part of China and it will eventually, according to the agreement, um, essentially essentially merge into China and become um, part of the, the 
China, which is the the state that it's currently in, the major state, which you know is an economic powerhouse in this world, and and also, as you rightly highlight, has uh, overtaken Hong Kong in terms of its um, economic influence in the region. So yes, I I do think the central government and maybe elements here in Hong Kong are um, demonstrating, you know, through videos and through a strong language the capacity of the central government to restore order here. And they would use the People's Liberation Army or the People's Armed Police or something like this. And so we see repeatedly the stories about how important and how big this force is and what it is capable of. And this is a kind of intimidation and threats on one hand, I would say. They have the legal... Um, authority and responsibility to do this under certain conditions such as chaos in Hong Kong where the local government is unable to manage the situation. So, um, but, but let's be clear about this. If the PLA were, were to be brought into Hong Kong in large numbers to restore order, this would involve martial law, it would involve curfews, it would involve shutting down the internet, shutting down the media. I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. I mean, it would be a very drastic step, and this would have also consequences for the economy, for investors um, in Hong Kong, and for people that are doing business in Hong Kong from overseas. So this would be a very serious matter. I do not believe the central government wants to do this. Um, uh, I don't know about some of the more radical protesters, whether they are pushing this, uh, pushing for this to happen, but I don't, don't believe the community in Hong Kong would like to see this. This would be an absolute, utter disaster for Hong Kong, and the f governance arrangements that we have now, one country, two systems, would just be destroyed. So I agree with those people that hold this view. This is... Uh, uh, this is uh, very serious. I, I hope that the police have the but that the police have the capacity to manage this. Our local police, but you have to remember, with levels of trust, distrust, basically, very high of the police in the community, this makes their jobs very hard. And why is the distrust? because of the political use that the government, the central and local governments, have and continue to make of policing. Yes, that's an excellent point. I'm interested in the fact that you, um, in your work, have been involved in universities and been around uh, the Hong Kong University campus for a number of years, and obviously your colleagues uh, also are there and beyond. In terms of the protesters and those Hong Kongers who are involved um, most frequently are engaged in these protests in different uh, locations around Hong Kong for the last two months, who are they and do you think uh, a number of them do um, have a background of being a student perhaps or engaged at a tertiary um, education institution or, or is it much broader than that in terms of the societal engagement on the ground in these protests? Because in terms of the uh, international media coverage of it, there's uh, a lot of focus on the fact that these uh, protesters are, um, you know, younger than the average um, Hong Konger. 
Yes, I do think that there are, you know, a lot of university students. We have eight universities. We have a lot of other higher education institutions. It's a summer break, right, here in Hong Kong. So that means uh, June, July, and August, they are... Um, they are not attending classes. You know, the students at my university who live in halls of residence, dormitories, uh, basically are permanently on New York time. I mean, they, they sleep during the day and they are awake at night. So the worst excesses of this stuff happens in the evening and at night. However, we should be very clear about this. When the police arrested rioters, so maybe there was a fairly substantial group of people who were students, but there also were members of the community. And we can, you know, a Cathay Pacific pilot was arrested and people coming from various various different backgrounds from um, employed, unemployed, and all this kind of thing, men and women, both of this. And then we can see communities where these confrontations with the police are happening, supporting the protesters, coming out and denouncing the police and uh, providing supplies to the protesters uh, um, and this kind of thing. So um, there is wide community support. If you look at opinion polling, then you can see that especially to withdraw the bill and to have an independent inquiry of police behavior, these these two issues, which the protesters are demanding, have almost universal support in Hong Kong. And even the even the central government has said that, well, when things die down, uh, maybe we do need to have uh, an independent inquiry. As we've seen in video investigations, there have been various um, police, you know, misbehavior conducted in the course of the last two months, and this needs to be investigated. Indeed, there's been a lot of um, use of tear gas and other um implements that have certainly damaged um, or injured a number of protesters and we've seen some pretty sophisticated tactics by the protesters in order to protect each other and uh, garner supplies and the communication uh, methods that they have are also quite sophisticated. Um, I'd be interested in your thoughts around Uh, the protesters and the fact that initially they had a very clear aim or ask of the government which was to entirely withdraw the extradition bill and for Carrie Lam to resign. Uh, What are the demands, if there are clear demands, of the protest groups now um, or has it morphed into something uh, less clear? Uh, this is an interesting question. Uh, from early July, the, one of the demands was the need for political reform in Hong Kong. As I have mentioned before, we continue to operate with unreformed colonial-era political institutions that disenfranchise the vast majority of people in Hong Kong. And so I think one of the demands from early July, maybe late June, is for 
universal suffrage to elect our chief executive, universal suffrage to elect our uh, legislature. So this is a new one. Some of the other demands, such as for Carrie Lamb to step down or amnesty for protesters, I think have less community support than the withdrawing the bill and an independent inquiry. And on the political reform issue, you know, we tried this in 2014, 2015, and it failed for, that's another issue, but it's for various reasons. And I, I personally believe, and I, you know, Carrie Lamb has said so herself, that we have fundamental problems with the structure of our governance, and these definitely need to be addressed. She would probably say, this is not the time to do this. We need to restore order first, and the central government would say that as well. But in order to restore order, in my view, I mean, the Carrie Lamb government has to own the chaos. They have to take responsibility for the chaos. They have to be accountable. And that has absolutely nothing to do with the universal suffrage. On the mainland, I mean, you know, the Communist Party holds leaders to account. Why can't they do the same thing here in Hong Kong? That's very true. I'm interested in mainland China because obviously they have close connections with the Hong Kong government administration. Do you think there is any reason uh, perhaps to suggest that the reason why Hong Kong uh, hasn't come out and owned this issue, political um, ongoing chaos, as you say, as their own issue, um, perhaps because the Chinese government doesn't want to um, see a back down or a, lo a loss of face um, that would then implicate them, I, I guess, in the sense that if anyone decides to start protesting, uh, they, that they're going to get their way. My understanding is that the core issue is setting up an independent inquiry into the behaviour of the police. The police have adamantly um, uh, denounced this and said that this is totally unacceptable to them. They haven't give many re given reasons for this, but that's what they've said. Carrie Lam is relying on the police to stay where she is. She needs the police. The central government needs the police. And so I think we have a, we have a huge police force, 30,000 uh, people under uniform, and uh, they are—they uh, have strongly opposed any such um, commission of inquiry. So this is the most popular demand from the in the community. This is one of the key issues that all sorts of people in the community, political elites, economic elites, have said we need. Even the central government has said that we could look into this after order is restored. But because the government, both the central and the local government, are depending on the police to stay in power in Hong Kong, and the police are so opposed to this, we're at this standoff. Mm. I really appreciate that yeah, you've <laughs> summarised and revealed that crux of the issue so well. I really appreciate that because it's uh, certainly much more difficult to understand at a distance. In terms of the 
uh, political dynamics that exist, as well as the economic dynamics between um, the central government, the mainland China and Hong Kong, I'm really interested in um, how those areas have changed um, and particularly the south of China being so... um, affluent in many pockets. In particular, um, there's a couple of provinces which have really risen to prominence over the the last number of years, Um, thinking particularly Shenzhen in Guangdong, uh, Guangzhou, which is also in Guangdong. There's a a number of areas in the southern parts of China that have really risen in part of this, you know, economic um, uplift of the Chinese economy. And as we've seen as well, Hong Kong is still an important um, central business area and it is a place where a lot of uh, Western companies reside and place their offices as as well as in Shanghai and Beijing. What's your view around how China in particular has uh, grown and what kind of, I guess, um, status that it now has in relation to perhaps Hong Kong and and it's, um, you know, clearly not reliant on... um, Uh, Hong Kong for any sense of uh, national pride or economic um, stability? So, yes, I mean, since the, um, you know, 1997, when Hong Kong became a Hong Kong special administrative region of China, we have seen the economy on the mainland just really boom. It has been exceptional growth, exceptional um, uh, reduction in poverty levels and all sorts of things like this. And Hong Kong, on the other hand, I would say, has um, has atrophied to a certain extent. But let's remember that there are, in my view, two things that, that um, two areas where Hong Kong can contribute to the mainland. One, is in the financial area, raising capital and this kind of thing, and Hong Kong is well known for its finance. And the other one is something that is being challenged today as we speak, the rule of law. Now, in Hong Kong, we have the common law system, and we pride ourselves that laws are enforced and equality before the law and all of this kind of thing. And I think the central government and the mainland appreciates these two things. There have been efforts to integrate Hong Kong more with the mainland economically, and there's a lot of immigration. Our water comes, integration, our our water comes from the mainland, our food comes from the mainland, and so many people in Hong Kong have businesses on the mainland. The central government has um, uh, introduced a Greater Bay Area uh, plan or project that would bring Hong Kong and Macau together with Guangdong Province um, into a new kind of economic partnership um, that would focus here on the south. I think this is an excellent move. I think Hong Kong should try to take advantage of this. Um, But as long as we have this kind of instability and an irresponsible government um, and unreformed political institutions, I just don't see this happening. 
Yeah, and it's interesting um, given that, as you say, your political system doesn't really allow for universal suffrage. There are elements of political engagement, but there isn't a clear way for the people to hold the Hong Kong government to account apart from public protest and these types of political actions that they're taking. And uh, and clearly the government, um, maybe they've got, they're getting the message, but they're just not actually uh, acting on on it and responding in the way that one would expect a government to respond to such large-scale um, protests. I'm really interested in the fact that you say that there is widespread support uh, by the, the general Hong Kong community for these protests, or at least a lot of the, the main demands of the protesters. What does that mean for um, Hong Kong moving forward, even if there is eventually a standoff or a tipping point that's reached and we see... Uh, uh, the government make concessions and perhaps the police are investigated. Where to from here? I know you mentioned that political reform is, you know, fraught with issues. Do you think that there is any likelihood in the future for uh, political reform of some kind to take place before um, Hong Kong is meant to be um, brought back into mainland China? I do think so, because I think there is pretty much universal recognition, whether it's in the central government or in um, Hong Kong, that political reform is absolutely necessary. Carrie Lam herself has talk, talked about the fundamental problems of Hong Kong, and I think this is one, this is the key fundamental reform, uh, reform that's required to enable the people of Hong Kong to make their government more accountable. So I do believe that down the road this will have to be addressed again. We tried in 2014 and tried 2014-2015 um, and there was opposition to that at the time um, and that opposition's succeeded in blocking it uh, to my regret i must say i think if had we had a uh, a chief executive who was elected by universal suffrage regardless of whether um she was or he was nominated by the communist party it would not we wouldn't be in this situation now mm. Um, I'd also just like to touch on a couple of the major developments that have been happening in China in the last year or so. We saw uh, President Xi Jinping basically announced that he would be president uh, for the foreseeable future, that he would remove presidential terms so there wouldn't be a clear transition to another leader anytime soon. And um, there is a whole range of, uh, I guess, myth around Xi Jinping. There's ways that people describe him like Xi Dada. I'm interested in uh, how the Chinese government has changed because one of your areas of interest, of course, is public administration and uh, the operation of the Chinese government. How has that evolved? Because from a, a distance, it appears that uh, there, it's kind of been clamping down more and more on um, kind of its influence or authority in uh, various policy areas. And we've seen uh, moves away from, um, I guess, opening up power or power sharing. We've, and then on the, the other side, we've seen a big clamp down on corruption uh, by Xi Jinping and some of the pushback that he's received uh, for doing that. Yes, I think this is absolutely 
Prue, she has become president for life. And, you know, these arrangements for the political system on the mainland were made uh, with uh, certain assumptions in mind by the Communist Party on the mainland, I would say. And one of these assumptions was that the external environment would be stable and not challenging. Well, we can <laughs> see that this has certainly turned out not to be the case. So we have, uh, dare I say it, Mr. Trump uh, wandering around, uh, causing all kinds of problems, I would say, for China in terms of trade and in terms of its economy. And what does this mean? I think it means that Xi's position as president for life is under challenge. And this is precisely because, you know, you could, re you could seriously ask the question, how well has he done? in managing these external challenges. We see the United States challenging on trade, on Taiwan, on the South China Sea. Um, we see potential um, problems in on the Korean Peninsula. So there are all this kind of thing going on. And this has probably had an impact on, China, on the mainland economy, on the economic growth, which is slowing. And so that's going on on one hand. On the other hand, the Communist Party has launched a blistering attack on liberalism and Western political ideas on the mainland. Now, this is curious from the perspective of Hong Kong, because our basic law basically guarantees these freedoms and sort of Western liberalism kind of thing. We see this on a daily basis. People have the right to protest, they have the right to assemble, they have right to free media, and a right to free speech and all these kind of things. And in Hong Kong, you know, these things mean what they say. On the mainland, we have many of these same things in the Chinese constitution, and they have an entirely different meaning. So we can see this is another part of this dynamic. The mainland's economy is being challenged. She is being challenged by the external environment. And so this, I think, makes the protest in Hong Kong, or revolt, I would say it's a kind of revolt against the local leader here, all the more damaging from the perspective of the mainland. Mm. Um, in terms of the, you mentioned foreign policy issues and of course uh, the US and China having this uh, quote-unquote trade war and there's been a number of um, issues that have ramped up in the last couple of weeks and Donald Trump has really raised the stakes again. Uh, that's clearly a major problem, not just for China and America and Hong Kong, but also for Australia. And not to make it all about us, but I would like your thoughts on the relationship between China and Australia, because Australia has been having um, a very consistent and ongoing dis public discussion by its politicians at the moment about our relationship to China and the Chinese government in particular and there seems to be a, a deterioration in the relationship between the two sides. Um, has there been any suggestion or um, thought on your side, you know, seeing both sides of um, both mainland China and Hong Kong around the perception of Australia and Australia's actions, given that we um, sit, I guess, often in the middle between China and America on a number of uh, foreign policy issues? 
Um, I'm not so aware of that. I mean, if you look at the protests in Hong Kong, you can see very strangely and, in my view, completely wrongly, you see a very small number of protesters with American or British flags. I don't really understand yeah. where this is coming from. Uh, so far, I haven't seen any Australian flags uh, uh, in the in the protests. Um, you know, I am aware a little bit of the controversy in Australia over Australia's relationship to the mainland, um, the extent to which Australia's economy is dependent on the mainland, the extent to which Australian politics, I mean, Chinese, uh, no, yeah, the extent to which Australian politics is influenced by um, you know, lobbying from China. But let's remember, in our open political systems, such as Australia or the U.S., I mean, foreign governments lobby all the time, you know. And so th this is one of the things that we uh, kind of expect, I would guess. So we have to be careful that in cases of this kind of lobbying or this kind of the attempt by China to exert influence in the uh, in open political and economic systems that we don't become racist about it. Mm. That is to say, we don't condemn all ethnic Chinese simply because of this. I think this would be it would be wrong, morally wrong. It would be extremely stupid because Ch uh, Chinese have so much to contribute. You know, so. This, I see a little elements of this um, going on in the U.S. especially. I think this is completely wrong. Um, and uh, so I, I wouldn't, would not like to see this happening in Australia either. Yeah, certainly from a, a local perspective here, I know a number of uh, people who of a Chinese background who are concerned about the kind of rhetoric that Australia has been using because it does lump uh, people of Chinese descent or people who are Chinese citizens all in the one group and conflating them with the Communist Party and the Chinese government, which of course is... Uh, a very unhelpful thing to do and it also really does alienate uh, people in Australia and make them feel separate. Yes, absolutely. I, I completely agree and this of course is the kind of thing that I was talking about. Mm. I mean, if we look at Chinese, uh, Chinese, you know, there are ethnic Chinese on the one hand and then there are Chinese citizens on the other hand and the Chinese citizens may include non-ethnic Chinese such as myself I am a Chinese citizen and so I uh, but I'm you could say part of an ethnic minority group and so there are lots of these people so I would not like to see anywhere that um, China's um, China rising and China's attempts to influence political systems, especially open political systems, which we, we see all over the place. I mean, this is what we expect foreign governments to do, and we we have to manage that. We have to be aware of this, you know, um, that, that we don't denigrate ethnic Chinese Australian citizens who, you know, this is, would be just totally wrong. Mm.
John, I really thank you for your time and your insights have been invaluable and it's been fascinating to hear your ideas and, and thoughts and I really appreciate your time and experience today. I'm happy to be here. I've been speaking with Professor John Burns, who is Emeritus Professor at the University of Hong Kong, and he will be appearing this Thursday, the 15th of August, at the University of Melbourne in the Spot Building, which is the Commerce Building near the Law School, and it will be 5.30pm till 7pm, and it features Louisa Lim, John Burns and Christine Wong talking about Hong Kong's political crisis, and I think it's going to be a fantastic event if Uh, this conversation was anything to go by I do hope you get to head along